0: and welcome to the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, assistant head, and I'm here today with Tom Tobin, um, high school English teacher extraordinaire at Avalon School. Um, He's here today to talk a little bit about Walker Percy and the moviegoer. Hi, Tom. Hi, Sherry. (laughs) Thank you for coming. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about how you got interested in Walker Percy and I think also, um, and this is just a suspicion of mine, we didn't like have a pre-podcast conversation, but I wonder if um, you wanna talk a little bit about when you got interested in Walker Percy as well. It's just a hunch I have that with his sort of distinctly mid-century um, sensibility that there might be, I don't know, there might be something um, in, in the past that, um, that draws you to Walker Percy.
1: Mm, that's interesting to think about. Um, well. I I first encountered Walker Percy in the mid-1980s at a party at my home, a friend of a friend um, who I met, was telling me that she studied under a professor at the University of Maryland whose name was Lawson, I think the first name was Lawrence, Lawrence Lawson. She was writing a PhD on Walker Percy. Lawson was a critic that uh, Walker Percy had a great respect for, someone he felt like really understood his his writing and his ideas, they were correspondents and friends. And she began talking about this writer, and it, it sounded very interesting to me. And um, uh, at that time, I would say I was having a sort of I don't know, a reversion, maybe, uh, or just it was a moment when I think as an adult I was really um, uh, just asking serious questions about my life and my faith and everything. And so uh, Percy sounded interesting. Uh, and so I began to read uh, the things that uh, my friend Shelley Jackson um, proposed. Uh, Shelly Jackson. She's a teacher at uh, in the MCPS now. She,
0: Shelly Jackson was my neighbor in College Park. Oh, my gosh.
1: Oh, yeah. small.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. In fact, I spoke with her uh, about transferring schools to her Oh, department. very
0: cool. She was a few years older than me. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, she was a very impressive person just in her intellect and her interest. And um, I. so I began to read, and I read uh, Love in the Ruins. It wasn't at all what I expected, you know. It was just a kind of raunchy and wild, <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah. Uh, and yet I loved it. And it kind of caught me by surprise, but uh, I really loved it. Um, it. It was funny, but it was also profound, and it was wacky and entertaining, and yet at the same time very thought-provoking. Uh, it really blew me away. I just loved it. I had never read anything like that.
0: Do you think that critics have a hard time um, pigeonholing Walker Percy because there are these elements that are more... Um, I don't know that are less literary, right? Yeah. And then there are, and then there are serious philosophical questions, right. and um, and of course, you know, full characterization and all the things that you hope for in literature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think uh, because like the movie goer, for example, I mean, in some ways, it's similar to you could say an existentialist novel, you know, mm-hmm. you know a, a character who's sort of misplaced and with you a, has a sort of human problem. He he has a predicament that goes right to the heart of being a human, placing yourself in the world, and and, and at one level, um, uh, you can look at him that way. But he's funny and and ultimately hopeful. And some of it, just his little satirical pieces, just are brilliant and make you laugh out loud. And so, he's you know not has some of that existential element, but he's not really classified there. You know, and yeah. people mm-hmm. try to claim him sometimes as a Southern writer, and of course that's true. I mean, he was really. Um, he was born in nineteen fifteen, which means that you know, as a boy, he probably spoke to people who had been born in slavery and Confederate veterans, and so he was very kind of. And his 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 background was from that aristocratic class that mm-hmm. were the planters and the and the the slave owners, and so he he was very um, uh, connected to the old South that hung over him. He did. He, grapple with it and think about it. and Yeah. I mean,
0: know. there's a lot about um, the Southern themes of loss. And yeah. I mean, how Aunt, how in the movie goer Aunt Emily talks about how, um, you know, it's important to be good and noble and do the right thing, but good is never going to prevail. Yeah. So there's a sense right. of like the lost cause. I mean, exactly. you know, yeah. and, and yeah. so from her point of view, um, the idea that um, that things are in decline.
1: Absolutely. And, and, and you know, there's... Um, uh, he writes, and it, it's definitely present in the movie, or it's kind of more explicit in some of his essays, but um, he writes a lot about Stoicism in mm-hmm. that class, that, that it really was the the defining world view. Mm-hmm. He said it was more uh, nominally Christian. He says within a Christian edifice, you kind of had this old Roman attitude towards life that you you will live with integrity, you will live with honor, you will live in a noble way. And sp- in spite of the fact that you're going to be beaten down, you know, right. you will you will retain your personal integrity. And, right?
0: Uh, is, isn't that is that the memo from Aunt Emily from Aunt Emily yes. um, that Mar- Marcus Aurelius? Which, that's right. Yeah.
1: That's yeah. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Be like a noble Roman.
0: There you go.
1: And and that's that's um, uh, Percy in his essay made that more explicit. He said, you know, the my class that in the South looked more to uh, Marcus Aurelius than to John Calvin. You know, and the voice of Aunt Emily. Novel, I really think, is that voice, uh-huh. you know, that voice that kind of proposes what she sees as, uh, and and she's an admirable and likable character in the story. But it's what she sees as what's best of, of us, you know, mm-hmm. this this kind of old southern way, which which was this personal integrity, this nobility, and yeah. Or, or was I? <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking about
0: your initial interest in Walker Percy, and oh. then um, I asked a question, I think, about how he's um, how he's classified. Oh, and right. I was thinking about sort of the mix of Southern, right. the mix of um, less literary elements or things that we associate less with, you know, with literary fiction. Right. Um, along with, I think about you know novels like the Thanatos um, Syndrome or like in, in other other novels where you have. Um, more sort of mass market kinds of um, aspects. Yeah. And then these are blended with um, these um, fully drawn characters and yeah. um, and you know fully developed um, at least philosophical questions, Absolutely. if not you know, a lot of answers. Yeah. I think I think there are quite a few answers here as well.
1: Yeah right. I, and uh, yeah, for me, like when I began reading Percy in the 80s, as I said, it wasn't what I expected, um, but I I really enjoyed it. From *Love in the Ruins*, I was intrigued. I, I didn't really grasp uh, you know the ideas that were present in the novel deeply, but they were intriguing to me, uh, and it really made me want to read. And I read after I read that one novel, I read everything. I, yeah. I read I read all of his novels, his essays, his biography, and uh, and and everything. But um, he, for me, just of the writers that I value, he has a. Um, a different importance I admire him as a writer all, all the things that you said but I really f- feel like Percy has an ability to make you look at the world differently hmm. you know that um, uh, for me reading his reading his novels and his essays I came away with this sense that you know the the soul is a real thing you can call it the self the the ego but there's this X dimension in a human being that's evident and if you ignore it or reduce it or try to pretend that it can be um, placated through consumerism yeah. or explained away by theory you 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 don't understand reality you don't understand what's in front of you in right. terms of you know society and and, and everything yeah and um, that that just hit me very hard reading his books it was like this kind of um uh, i was had a grateful surprise for for a new a new wonder in mm-hmm. front of what it is to be a human being, and, and to me, that's the kind of gift of this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the um, that mid-century pushback against consumerism mm-hmm. that we see in I mean Salinger, we see what? it in Robert Lowell, we see you know I see it all yeah. over the place in the mid-century, um, but it's different in Percy. It's different, and yeah. um, and maybe you could talk a little more about that. But I think also um, there's. Um, there's a, um, a kind of almost a Flannery O'Connor warning about um, the misuse of religion or the use yeah, of religion as absolutely. we see um, Binks's mother. We should probably do some exposition about the novel. Yeah. <laughs> but Binx's mother, yeah. uh, who, is, um, who is Catholic, um, how she seems to use her religion um, as a way of I mean, not quite objectifying the world, but of like getting con- getting control yeah. or cutting it, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. it up. Yeah, right, cleaning it up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and and so it seems like you get uh, maybe maybe it's the mix of elements that's interesting, um, and then also of course, um, you know, the um, the very clear influence of existentialism, mm-hmm. and and those moments where um, there's a kind of push for authenticity. Um, against you know some of these other elements which are you know are sometimes just sort of like questions about how how best to live yeah so I don't know do you want to go back a little bit and talk about I mean I know that you're prepared to talk about Walker Percy's life since mm-hmm. you just did this um, at another event um, and then we can provide a little exposition about the novel and uh, and go from there
1: okay I'm gonna just say one thing first yeah. <laughs> in light of what you were just saying because in, in Percy's kind of um, critique of of our time and the difficulties of really being human in our time, he really makes a distinction between uh, romanticism and existentialism. Mm. He would say that, you know, the romantic rebellion against sort of very ordered, straight-line, enlightenment thinking was in a way something that um, the masters of the age, the technocrats, the scientists could tolerate, you know, go go off and dwell on your feelings. That's fine. <laughs> That's not a threat you know, mm-hmm. to, to what's still a, you know the, what, he, what Percy would see was the dominant kind of scientific humanist view which had sort of been uh, gradually taking shape for centuries. But uh, he said the existentialist threat was different because it, it was saying uh, it was sort of a challenge to a more reductive scientific scientific mindset itself saying you can measure everything. Uh, you can name everything, you can define everything, but you can't define your own self, that there's something being left out mm-hmm. of, of, your, of your view mm-hmm. that's, that's crucial. And this is why I, I, he would, I would say he was drawn to the existentialists, but not to the romantics. Okay. You know, that somehow yeah. kind of a romantic rebellion was just a sort of um, indulgence of feeling and, uh, and sentiment. But what was being left out by this growing consensus around this scientific humanist view uh, was more than feeling and sentiment. You know? Yeah, it was the self, you know, right you know, and you know, right. th- this is this is why he you know He um, kind of I think the, the existentials resonated with him and mm-hmm. then the romantics did not but you want uh, to go back to his life um, And and what exactly did, what do you want me to draw from that the- um,
0: I and mean, I, I don't know I think that you have done some like you've done some um, some work on, um, on Percy as a figure and I yeah. just I just wonder like what's um, if, if there's anything important that you want to um, to pull out I mean certainly um, there's the fact that he's a doctor mm-hmm. um, and um, there are all the the southern connections that you've mentioned.
1: Okay, all right, um, yeah. His life was of course growing up a very very sad life. It was um, a depression that ran through the family, uh, and both his grandfather and his father killed themselves. Uh, his mother, th- at that point, he and his two brothers were taken in by William Alexander Percy, and you'll notice the uh, dedication of the moviegoers to W.A.P. Yes, uh, and that's that's his his uncle, uh, who was a remarkable man. He was a um, a writer. He was kind of the Southern gentleman par excellence. You know, cultured, uh, widely widely respected as a man of integrity, uh, culture, and uh, he was taken in there. His mother. Uh, died in a car accident, and she went off a bridge, and there was not bad weather or any particular mm-hmm. reason why that would have happened. It's a, kind of the dark view in Greenville is that she also did that so uh, that she took her own life as well. But the, um, so he, he grew up in this, this, this very traumatic um, childhood and adolescence, and he was taken in by, by Uncle Will. Uncle Will had been a Catholic when he was young, lost his faith and kind of reverted back into what was really the default position of his class, which was this Stoicism that um, we talked about earlier. So Percy was very uh, influenced by that, Um, and Emily in the novel is, and and Percy has acknowledged this, it was pointed out by his good friend Shelby Foote, is just a feminized version of Uncle Will, Mm -hmm. Uh, that the voice of of Uncle Will kind of representing the the values of their class were were transferred to this matriarch figure in the the novel. Um, But Percy, as he grew older, saw these problems in Stoicism. And you know, one problem in Stoicism, it really takes a certain temperament, a certain kind of self disciplined person to even pull it off. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, you can't really, uh, it requires a certain mastery of self and, and uh, discipline and virtue that, that Walker Percy knew that he lacked. And so he wasn't, at one level, he simply wasn't up to being a Stoic. And you see this, I think, in Binks' oh, sure. in the novel. His aunt kind of expects him to be a you know, fine gentleman like all the men in your family, and he's just, he's just not there at all. Well. So I think Percy, in that, um, as he grew older, uh, that that stoicism became a sort of scientific skepticism, hmm. and he he loved science. And some people kind of, you know, accuse him of being anti-science, and that's very far from the truth. He loved loves, you know, to the throughout his life the scientific method, the orderly method of thought that it is, the elegance of it. He speaks of all these things. He kind of put his faith then in this sort of behavioralist, the scientific model, that science is where we put our hope, uh, that will ultimately make things right for us. He w- had a period of crisis, it was right around the time of the war. He never served in the war because he, after he became a medical doctor, going through a uh, medical school in North Carolina and then um, finishing at uh, Columbia University, he contracted tuberculosis uh, working on uh, corpses. He did autopsies. That's kind of an odd thing. You know, yeah. Of all the things you could choose to do, but he 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 liked doing it not out of morbidity, but because it was kind of a very um, precise application of the scientific method. Sure. You know, you do your test, you get your results. You know, yeah. And this is the kind of thing he was attracted to, but he contracted tuberculosis while he did that, and then um, was in and out of sanatoriums for 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 years, and and that was really you could say the period of his intellectual incubation. He. He began to. He was not able to do much else, and he just read at an incredible uh, breadth and depth. Uh, Christian writers, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, the existentialist writers, uh, every major philosophical figure of the 19th and 20th century. You know, he he read religious figures, and it was uh, it was the period where these ideas that are explored in his essays in the 40s, and then in his uh, 40s and 50s, and then in his novels from the 60s on, uh, all these ideas kind of took shape in, in, in
0: that period. It's amazing how many writers have a period of illness or mm. otherwise they're immobilized mm. by something and, um, yeah. and they read and read and read yeah. in a way that it's the right thing at the right time.
1: Right.
0: It's amazing how many writers um, have a period where they're immobilized mm. um, and they, um, they spend a lot of time reading or otherwise absorbing exactly what they need mm. in order to, to do their next thing.
1: Right. But um, it was not long after that period, really, where he had a religious conversion. And, um, you know, you're left to surmise, he he never really writes um, that explicitly about what made him convert. And probably that's fair. I mean, it's not something that can be so neatly explained.
0: Well, right. And it's it's probably an accumulation of factors. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Was
1: was this in the 50s? It was, uh, I think, 47. Okay. Yeah. And... um, it was a funny anecdote because he and Shelby Foote were lifelong friends from Green- They their high school years were in uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Of course, Foote wanted to be a novelist. He wanted to sort of extend. He was a great admirer of Faulkner and he wanted to sort of extend Faulkner's work. And he ended up better known as an historian. Yeah. And uh, Percy wanted to be an essayist to, uh. to, to communicate these ideas and he ended up better known as a novelist. But they had a beautiful friendship. Um, I read a most of their letters, and uh, it's, it's really a testimony to a, a long and beautiful friendship that they had. But they were traveling out west, and the west for Percy plays into his novels, not so much the movie, color, but, but in other ones, uh, as the place of pure possibility. You know, mm-hmm. The south is mm-hmm. this, all these entanglements of history. It's, it's dense and it's thick with its social manners and it, the impositions that its social life places on you and the, and the pain of the history. Right, but the but the West was open spaces and pure possibility, and they they traveled to the West, and Percy uh, told his good friend that he was thinking of becoming a Catholic, and Foot was just horrified. He said, Yours is a mind in full intellectual retreat, <laughs> and and I I think to the very end that he did ne- he never really got it. I mean they were good friends, so in the end you know he accepted what his friend chose, uh-huh. but but at the. Um, uh, uh, Foote spoke at, at, I don't know if it was Percy's funeral or perhaps it was a memorial event. It was in New York City. And when Foote uh, spoke, he said that, uh, you know, he will be remembered as a, like Dostoevsky, he will be remembered as one of our great writers for all of his talents long after his more quaint theological <laughs> beliefs are are forgotten, you know, oh, wow. or so. Yeah. So. Wow.
0: But. I mean, and to me, I mean, it seems like, as with Dostoevsky, mm-hmm. the um, the quaint theological beliefs are part and parcel of, you know, yeah. of, of yeah. the whole. Yeah. And so thinking about um, thinking about separating seems really hard. Yeah. So that's an it's an interesting observation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So um, do you want to introduce us a little bit to the movie girl?
1: To the movie girl. Okay. Um, as, as Sherry said, I recently... Uh, Gave a presentation, had to put my thoughts together, and ask myself the question. You know, if you try to help someone understand this book, because I think you do need a little help with it for most people. I I think
0: the beginning is um, is hard to get through for a lot of readers who maybe have an expectation. About the philosophical import of Walker Percy, you know, I think that right. when they're confronted with Sharon Kincaid and E.M.G. and all of that, right, um, right, it's right. it's hard, I think, to um, to understand how all of that really is necessary until you've completed the book.
1: No, no, I agree. Um, uh, I I think it it, it helps to. Um, be ready to look for, for one particular thematic dimension, and, and, and that is displacement. There's one word, I think, that helps you tune into where the drama of the novel is located, to kind of what to look for. Uh, it's about being um, unable to enter into to life, and that has many different dimensions to it. Uh, some of it is um, very recognizably psychological. I mean, uh, Kate Cutter, one of the uh, main characters in the story, has been traumatized by an auto accident in which her fiancé died. And she's um, suffering deeply. She's very, very neurotic, and really, at times. So so uh, extremely anxious that, you know, the family is concerned about her life. And so, I mean, the sense of... And she's, she is a young Southern woman from a wealthy family, and the expectations on her and her life and the kinds of things that she'll do in this position are great. And she just can't do it. She just can't. Right. It's It's a huge strain for her to kind of play the role that, that um, the people in her family want her to and generally, generally they're they're understanding that they're, they're not pushing it too hard but they uh, but she's but they recognize and the aunt emily is the matriarch in the story she's deeply concerned about it but it's just said that's a loss what do you do how do you get her to to fit in so you have that level of displacement but then um binks bowling has some of that too i mean he's he is a he was wounded in the war it's not really clear to me, anyway, that, that that's really the source of his his uh, sense of being abstracted from life, as the title suggests. The movie, Gore, he's yeah. he's a guy who's who's just um, taking in reality kind of secondhand. He, he's, he he just feels removed from it. He's kind of a, a outside, gazing at things. Yeah,
0: like, I mean, as with Kate, I feel like Banks um, had you know before the traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he has some of those qualities that um, that then get amplified by you know being shot in Korea yeah uh, or in the case of Kate you know having her fiance die mm-hmm. um, I feel like they're already sort of poised to um, respond to things as they do and then the um, the event kind of amplifies I agree. the story. I agree. yeah
1: yeah I, I don't think in the novel you get the sense that the events caused it it amplified mm-hmm. it. I think that's a good way to put it. But I think you have uh, to read the novel and I think enjoy it and to kind of tune into it the, you have to look at these different levels of displacement and that's really I think where the drama is. How, how do you I mean, and I think with Bing's Bowling in particular it reaches another dimension a, a kind of more um, universal dimension of our the problems in our time you know mm-hmm. of being they're more evident in him I think and uh, that uh, he he just you know he he doesn't really he has the stoic tradition from his aunt and the dialogues between him and his aunt I think are very important in the book yeah uh, they're almost like um, an internal dialogue of Walker Percy I think you know sure you know I mean this is this is what what your family is offering you and he had a very very high regard for his uncle there's a beautiful um, he wrote an essay about him and the conclusion of the essay is uh, and this is all I can really say. Uh, I've never known a more remarkable man and I owe to him a debt that can never be repaid you know he had this mm-hmm. very and you, you have that same kind of um, esteem for Aunt Emily in the novel she's a good person and, and she generally believes in this kind of code but for, for Bing Spall he can't do it he just can't do it and right. there's some dialogues in the novel where you see he's trying to his aunt just doesn't comprehend him and he doesn't know how to say it you know but he's he's trying to say look I'm just not this person that you think I am I'm I'm removed, really, from that whole thing that that you that you want to propose to me.
0: Yeah, but he doesn't have a counter-proposal, and that's no, that's doesn't. the problem. He right? No, he does and
1: and this is the um, that beautiful passage. It's one of my favorite Percy passages. It's both funny and deep and kind of poetic. when Pink uh, Bowling speaks about the search, you know the mm-hmm. the search that he's going to to undertake. What that search is, I think, also can be a little baffling. Does he announces this pretty early on you know and, and it's obviously a very important passage uh, but does he do it you know it does, what is his search you know right. he's
0: developed a jargon for it Yeah, has I mean he has yeah. certain certain aspects I mean so yeah and it's also it's presented to us without a lot of exposition like there's like here's the search that um that Binks is on or or periodically is on right yeah and when things when things are rough he doesn't write in his notebook but when um but when he's doing better he's more actively on the search and you have him um in places where he's more uh, maybe contemplative like he's like things interfere with the wonder right and he wants to, right. um, to you know, to instead of doing the scientific research that he's supposed to be doing, he wants to you know watch the light move across the room over right. the course of the day, and um, and his his time in college where he's you know on the porch of the frat house, Right. and it, all of those moments where he's he's not, in in ways there's something to be said for this kind of contemplation perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, certainly Emily's on the side of action. Right. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be a kind of um, I guess coherence mm-hmm. uh, or completeness to what he's mm-hmm. up to. Yeah, I, I think
1: there's something positive in this search the analysis, and then there's also something kind of problematic in it. Mm-hmm. I mean at, at one level, he wants something that speaks to the fullness of his self and, and he kind of understands that, um, scientific research doesn't do that. It's a different kind of thing. It's sure. that the object of knowledge that it seeks is something in material reality. And as Percy says in many places in his writing, in many different ways, the scientific method really can't be turned back on the knower successfully. Right. You know, you can't turn it back on the scientist himself. So there's something in him that's, I think, um, right and noble. You know, I'm going to look in life. I'm going to move. Uh, I'm going to look for something in life. He speaks of at one point um, the vertical search mm-hmm. and the horizontal search. That right. the vertical search is the abstract one. You know, right. the, you you look at the great writers have written about human life and what scientists have achieved, and then you apply it. But he has this sense somehow that this kind of application of abstract knowledge is is never adequate to understand a human being. That human being needs to to find something in. Experience in, in the real experience of living mm-hmm. that 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 speaks to that speaks to the fullness of the of the heart, right. you know. And, and at that level, I think he's he's um, he's right, and there's something noble in it. But he doesn't do this search very well. No, <laughs> you know? well, not
0: with the kind of um, intensity or devotion right. that we would imagine would be associated with you know this sort of urgency that might be associated with yeah. trying to figure stuff out. Um, as with also many important works of, of especially I think American literature, mm-hmm. there's this moment where Binks turns 30. Like I <laughs> don't know how many <laughs> oh, novels yeah. we but have. Like, we like, have the it happens uh, in Taraway. Right. It happens right. in um, it happens in Kate Chopin. Right. It hap- I mean it happens all over the place where suddenly the characters I mean in, in Gatsby of course it's like, oh I just realized. You yeah know? yeah. But um, but here we see it coming. Right, but right. there's this sense to, and um, of course Hamlet's 30, right? So there's this um, there's this sense of you know this this um, cusp to real adulthood, Mm -hmm. right? That um, that Binks is having trouble with, um,
1: and that's true.
0: And sort of how how that works as well.
1: But you know, this last time I read it just a few weeks ago, um, there was one line that jumped out at me that I didn't notice before, and because when when Binks speaks to uh, Kate, uh, he often doesn't really like. The way that she takes his ideas, uh-huh. uh, he feels like you know she sort of um, plays around with them in a way that I guess he feels might trivialize them or something, or, yeah. or incorporate them into some psychological theory. And he's always a little bit.
0: I feel like he kind of puts stuff on her, like he he's, he boils it truth, but she's wrong about this. It's like that. Continue right. like yeah, yeah, ar- yeah. yeah. to argue with her, or but he
1: shares things with her. Yeah, uh, I mean they clearly they're even though people are puzzled by it, they're they're sort of kindred spirits. Sure, but the um. There was a line when she said he was talking about his search, and she said, uh, "Maybe you're closer than you realize." Uh, and and I think with him in the end, although his his desire to find something, of course, is is you know just a beautiful human thing. Though. It's admirable when you see in in life when like, people take life seriously and and look for the truth that they need. But the um, there's also something a little bit abstracted about it and. Uh, she says at one point, maybe it's closer than you, than you realize. And mm. I think in the end, his search was valuable in the sense that it opened him up to receiving something that was right. that was some, an initiative that wasn't right. his, yeah. you know. Right, and, okay. And, and in the end, I think uh, that that's really was his yeah. salvation, was, was more the fact that he was found than, than that he found, you know. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: more like a, um, a Paul Auster novel in that way. It's sort of like the the character is passive and receives what happens, uh, rather than the um, in your typical American novel where you have the character setting out, you know, yeah, uh, or you know, any kind of quest novel, I suppose, where you have the the character setting out. So that's that's interesting. I think too about the um, the kind of split where Binks and Kate are talking. Um, and Kate starts talking about beauty. Mm-hmm. And so you get what Kate says. And then you also get Banks saying, uh, you know, beauty's no good. Uh, and this, um, and this, this kind of back and forth. And he tries to steer the conversation to money. <laughs> so that, and so the search of the, the the search for money is uh, will will take you farther, uh, and so this this kind of um, this kind of counterpoint that he yeah. that he offers, I mean that could be um, what you were talking about earlier, kind of the romanticism versus the stoicism. I mean, I think that for Binks, um, the acquisition of money is a kind of game. Mm-hmm. and so it's intellectual. So it's kind of the emotional versus the intellectual, mm-hmm. um, and sort of I I don't know. It seems to me like that's a moment too where you see. Um, the ideas kind of splitting and playing out, and neither one is really satisfactory as given in the novel. No, that's um, true. So that's I don't true. know. I think that's I think that that's interesting. Do you feel like? Um, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have some spoilers here. At the end of the novel, uh, when you have Binks and Kate um, married, I wonder what you think about like how that relationship will work. I mean, in ways, I see um, that Kate says she needs somebody to tell her what to do you know Mm -hmm. and Binks definitely needs another person to care for in a real way yes but I don't know I mean I've heard people talk about that relationship as kind of codependent (laughs) and um it seems like there are there's a variety of ways of reading it do you read it as a positive thing and um and how how do you see the future for Binks and Kate
1: yeah I, I I do see it in a positive light it's um Bing seems grounded in that last part. He he seems uh, uh, capable of love and commitment, and he's just no longer this aimless man. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, mean, yeah, I guess that's, it is odd, isn't it? Uh, This thing's Just tell me what to do and 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 I'll do it and everything, but.
0: uh, Well, and she says, you know, I'm uh, a religious person, right? I need someone to, uh, like, if God were to appear and tell me what to do, I would do it right away. I need to be told what to do, and then I'll do it. Right, right, right. and um, and without that, I, I don't know but what to do.
1: It also, I mean, she says, you know, you'll be thinking of me, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and so I mean, I think it's 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 within the context of love, you know, uh, you know that uh, I'll I'll I want to do these things because you know I know you're with me, and so. Right. Uh, so I mean, it's it's definitely unusual, but all most of Percy is unusual. Yeah, no, but, I mean, but but I but didn't, I, didn't I, mean I, saw I read it very positively. The thing that's mysterious in the book is is just the transition in things. Uh-huh. You know, the, I mean, the incident on the train. quite you know, the first time I read the novel, wow, this is this is a strange turn of events. Yeah. Uh, but the, um, uh, but now and that doesn't it doesn't seem very hopeful. It just seems like two desperate people, really. Right. And. Um, and then, and then got,
0: Emily's not wrong. Like I mean, like she's at a disadvantage. Um, she's yes, yeah. She's yes. she's not well. She's yet. not yeah. well. Why
1: why why are you doing this? Uh, and then not long after, you know, there's this transition, and it's very subtle. There are a few hints there. I think I love that one. There's one passage when he describes um, Ash Wednesday, and of course, the whole novel has that. Structure, you know, of lead, leading up to Mardi Gras and then right. Ash Wednesday, and then and then uh, the epilogue is. Uh, oh, that's
0: very cool. I hadn't really thought about it, it but that's that's. Um, I mean, I was gonna say that's Faulknerian without being Faulknerian, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think about the the role of Easter yes, in yes, *The Sound and of the Fury*. Yes, right, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah,
1: and so um, and I think for Percy, um, the sacramental is really important, uh, and you have to note it when when you read his books. I mean, almost all of his. Love in the ruins the second coming almost all of them at some point at some key moment if not the conclusion there's some way that the sacrament a sacrament is involved and i think it's very um um important in his thinking so much of what he was concerned about was how does this phenomenon of the human person fit into the material world you know how do we how do we be real human beings and and real full selves you know uh, carnal and spiritual, how how do we do this? I mean, that was so much of his concern. And he never said this, uh, but I I suspect it's true that perhaps um, one thing that attracted him to the Catholic Church and his conversion was precisely the sacramental, because it just seems to, in a way, uh, respond to the questions that he posed, Right. you know, and um, at at the near, again, spoiler alert, but at near the conclusion of the movie, there's a, I think, a beautiful passage, and it describes a... A black man coming out of the church on Ash Wednesday. Um, I mean, the only significance of, of, the, of him being black is simply that the ashes are almost imperceptible. You know, they're they're very subtly present uh, as you look at him. And uh, Binks Bowling uh, ponders this guy as he comes out, and he no, he was in his car and he was reading some um, uh, trade man. Or he was some kind of salesman, and he was reading manuals in the car, and he's like, "Why is he here? Why is he here?" Is he here because it's all connected to the his business and coming up in the world? as some kind of social function, or is it possible uh, that he really believes that God is present right here at the corner of in, in, right. in two two of these uh, New Orleans streets with very French name? Uh, and then he says, and perhaps by some gratuitous miracle of grace, it's both. And right. you know, and I thought that was a very a beautiful line. Uh, but it's not long after that that you see the transition in Banks, and it's very subtle. But like, I mean, I think perhaps. Um, there has been some kind of interior change in banks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, following that thread, too, I think that um, the half-brother Lonnie is um, presented as um, sort of like he's always had this close relationship or this um, this nice affinity with um, with yeah. they understand each other yeah, in some yeah. profound way. Yeah. And it's always been that way. And we're sort of brought into it to observe it as, um, Sharon observes it at the beginning and as Kate observes it later. Um, but I wonder too if, um, I mean, certainly um, there's the, the death of Lonnie that um, perhaps also plays a role or even oh, okay. just um, that's, that's a good point. even just the mm-hmm. way that um, that Lonnie behaves surrounding his own suffering.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but I, I that last point you made I think is very important too. I mean, you, you, you pointed this out earlier, but there's certainly... A distinction between the mother and her son Lonnie uh, in this practicing Catholic family, but um, as we we touched on earlier, you know the mother kind of for her faith was a way of ordering things, kind of keeping everything tidy and regular. But for the but for her son, um, it was his suffering that made him, in a sense, ask questions more deeply, you know, and to and respond more deeply right
0: so the son and, is like a 15 year old boy who's um in a, in a wheelchair he's paralyzed and ill um,
1: right well that's a really good point uh, his death at the end because again the, the, you're left to guess a little bit <laughs> I mean you know they uh, is suddenly solid he's not aimless he's, yeah he's capable of love and commitment in which he was hadn't been in, in the, the whole story previously mm-hmm. uh, and you're kind of you are left to wonder but there are these hints there and, and I think um, to go with (laughs)
0: him. yeah i mean so lonnie talks about um how he um has committed the sin or how he habitually commits the sin of envy uh, because he's jealous of his older brother who died um and there's a sense of i mean even there it's kind of open is you know is he glad that his brother died does he himself wish to die does like how does it how does it all fit together Mm -hmm. and then toward the end he says that he's you know he's resolved his sin well, is it because he's going to die, uh, or is it, and he knows it, or is it that he has um, conquered this difficulty in his disposition? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel yeah. like it's
1: ambiguous. It is, yes. I agree.
0: So, we haven't really talked about actual movie going. Oh. You've I mean, talked about it a little bit as um, providing a kind of insulation for Banks from the world oh. uh, that he's able to see things kind of at second hand. So, if. Um, if we look at characters who do that, right? Who use different um, different means to separate themselves from their experience to make it more, to make it easier in ways, uh-huh. um, or to give them a fixed way of seeing it. I wonder how you regard um, this phenomenon of moviegoing that we mm-hmm. see in the novel. I and mean, I see it happening in like three or four different ways. But yeah. um, I'm interested in what you have to say. Well, of
1: course. Yeah, exactly. The first one uh, it's simply him and his inability and in certain, certain degree unwillingness you know, to kind of place himself in, in the world as a sort of a retreat and you know to prefer this, this kind of artificial world, this reconstructive vision of the world that's mm-hmm. kind of no threat. You kind of just you just watch it and it doesn't really ask anything. Well, right. I
0: mean as any as people who read, I mean I think that we understand this, yeah, I right? Exactly. And yeah. Here's, here's yeah. an alternative, you know, um, view of the world or something that's been packaged for us in some way That we can learn from, but that's very safe.
1: But he does some interesting things with it, you know, beyond beyond that initial, uh, you know, that that initial aspect. Um, Of course, he's always concerned about um, uh, being a real person in 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 everyday life, and he's saying, you know, this is something that we've increasingly made difficult. Mm -hmm. Talks about how you know this kind of consumeristic mode of being it it sucks the the value and the meaning out. Everything becomes like a piece of gum you chew it and it loses its flavor. You need another piece of gum and all everything around you sort of gets drained of, meaning you you you've already consumed it. And but in movies, um, uh, things are kind of temporarily anyway saved from that. They're kind of validated, like a street where yeah. a, a street where a movie was made uh, is suddenly kind of um, saved from everydayness. It's kind right. of saved from, right. It's kind of saved from this sort of consumeristic draining of of attraction. Uh, when movie stars are, are seen walking about and early in the novel that happens, I forget the name of it.
0: It's article. William Holden.
1: William Holden, he's, he's in New Orleans. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the shop where William Holden is, is no longer an everyday place. The people near him are yeah. suddenly validated. So he has this sense that, um, you know, in, in this crazy world we've constructed, it's it's the artificial world that kind of gives meaning yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. validation to the, uh, To to the real world and
0: that's a very um, Gatsby inflected idea as well, right? (laughs) The artificial gives meaning to the real. Yeah, Um, but yeah, that's interesting. Um, But yeah, that's um, that sort of he calls it certification the certification of the movie star. Right, uh, makes the thing makes the everyday thing um, both real and um, not subject to the malaise that he talks about. That, um, that the malaise, and that's got to be the, you know, the materialistic, um, everyday life um, of consumerism, mm-hmm. you know, and so that there are, there are things um, that can take you out of the malaise, and one of those is this encounter yeah, uh, with the movie star. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel like it's a stand-in for religion?
1: Um... Yeah, I do. I You know, in, in other places, like in um, Lost in the Cosmos, he, he says some interesting things. He, he uses the terms transcendence and imminence. And uh, imminence, meaning you just plunged into the ordinary, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the ordinary day. Transcendent, having a kind of posture of judgment on life. And he uses the examples of the scientist and the artist. Hmm. You know that the, the the scientist in in making some kind of judgment on this is what's true about material reality, has a posture above material reality, kind of standing above it, saying this is this sure. is how I this is how I name this yeah. thing. Uh, the artist as well, it's it's also a naming of things in a, you know, in a different mode, uh, you know, a reflection of reality. It has in it, in its own way, a kind of judgment, reflection of reality. But he also speaks about the. Um, the difficulty of re entry in some funny ways in Lost in the Cosmos. He talks about that. Yeah. You know, uh, about, uh, well, he talks about William Faulkner a lot and says, you know, after, the, after he wrote The Sound and the Fury, he just dressed up like a pirate and went on a drinking binge in New Orleans. he goes, what do you do after you've written this, you know, profound, brilliant novel? And wh- what do you do the next day? You know, you, you have right. to somehow return to the imminent, as he would say, to use that term. And he says, you know, this is this is another thing he sees as characteristic of modern life is this kind of swinging back and forth between uh, being trapped in the imminent, the everydayness, the malaise. You know, just floating along. How do you, in this own humorous way? You know, um, it's not cancer I'm afraid of. It's Wednesday afternoon. How do you right. deal, how do you deal with Wednesday afternoon? Uh, and so you either in that mode or you have these kind of temporary brilliant. Moments of transcendence, you know, the, sure. the discovery, the great work of art, but then this kind of broken swinging back and forth. And, and I, I think, you know, the moviegoer has that dimension as well. I mean, you know, that one can can find solace in this kind of abstracted posture. But sooner or later, you have to deal with, you know, the actual stream of experience. Right. And
0: things, too, is um, like, I mean, he might get interested in um, in some problem uh, or some intellectual activity. But but he's drawn to the cross beam, you know, right. not just the vertical, but also the horizontal. Um, yeah. And I don't know, does that line up? Yes. The transcendent and the imminent? Yeah, I think so. Right. I, okay. I
1: think so, because what, what what always gets his attention is what's um, not universal. It's what's unique mm-hmm. in this moment, in this precise moment, yeah. you know, okay. that's the thing that's- That's
0: the thing that kills the malaise.
1: That's the thing that's happening. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what your hope does. <laughs> I'm not sure it always does, but. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but no, I think you're right. Because, I mean, you know, if that's very, that's prevalent in, in so much of his writing. The sense that um, um, the spirit of abstraction has made life dull. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean that things are the, the moment is lost to us. It's explained. Yeah. You know, it's it's explained by, by, by theories. And he, he in um, his final address when he was the Jefferson Lecture and won the, na- the National Endowment for the Humanities award. You know, he spoke about the problems of um, theory and consumption. Mm-hmm. he like you know that this is the way that we kind of belittle our own existence To turn sure. into it simply as grabbing what we see uh, meets some kind of consumeristic need or we explain it away by by theory or we explain ourselves away by by theory you know and, and um, he used the, he concluded that speech which is one of his final word he died just two years after that but he said that uh, you know we can't give in to theory or consumption we must live as a sovereign wayfarer I thought was a beautiful expression sovereign in the sense free, not not sure, not not governing, not the governing, product, not the free, product yeah. of any mechanistic theory, but genuinely free, but not in possession of our destiny in search of it, you, uh-huh. know, you know. And it's,
0: yeah, and you see flex of that in, um, like for example, Kate, she has that, um, the freedom, um, that is at once you know very sad, but um, and is. Is a very kind of real freeing from what she had committed to uh, with the death of Lyle, Um, and then uh, so there's this so she has this this feeling of freedom, but she doesn't really know what to do with it, Mm -hmm. and um, and I think that's that the alienation of the modern person and that kind of freedom as a kind of boundlessness, kind a sense of like unbelonging um mm-hmm. is is hard for her. Um and then so if you have the sovereign wayfarer, you have the um the person who's free but on a path.
1: On a path, right. Very good. Yeah. Well, I think that's very good. I agree with that.
0: Anything else that you want to make sure we talk about? <laughs>
1: um I we we've talked about a lot. <laughs>
0: No, I think you gave the last word, and then I kept talking. Because <laughs> I um, but, okay. yeah. but yeah, so thank you for coming to talk about The Movie Um I think that, um, do you think it's the right place to begin if somebody wants to pick up Walker Percy? I think it's a good, it's a good novel to begin with in ways. What do you think?
1: Um, maybe. You know, it's funny. I, I, I read Love in the Ruins first. I think it remains my favorite. Ah. And I read um, The Second Coming next. Uh-huh. It's a very different book. Um, a lot heavier. Than, than the moviegoer and I, I read the moviegoer third and it didn't win me over immediately I, I, I think I mean I, I liked all his books all his writing but I, it was not it didn't have the same appeal to me that the first two did but um, when I kind of read his whole opus and got better tuned into his concerns and then read the moviegoer again I liked it a lot yeah uh, so I'm not. I don't know if it would be.
0: Better. Well, it's definitely one of those books that you finish it and then you want to read it again.
1: Yes, you know, yes, because yes.
0: It, the, when you get it's to intriguing. the end, then yeah. a lot of the beginning makes more sense, That's and right. you want to kind of go That's back right. and see sort of where it's all going and how it how it relates.
1: Anyway, after you've listened to this podcast, you're you're ready to you're ready to read. <laughs> That's true. You've been
0: prepared. Thank you for listening to the Life of the Mind podcast from Brookwood and Avalon Schools. I'm Sherry Walsh here in episode eight with Tom Tobin. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Views expressed are the participant's own.